The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. well-educated women who were undertaking the toughest scientific and medical jobs, ones which are usually associated with men. So almost accidentally I stumbled across a few women who were scientists and doctors and as soon as I'd found a couple I realised they couldn't possibly be alone and I wanted to find out more about them and some of their stories are just fantastic. That was Patricia Farrer talking to us about women's science and the First World War. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For today's episode, we've been speaking to Patricia Farrer, a historian of science at the University of Cambridge, whose new book explores science and suffrage in the First World War era. She spoke to our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorne. I'm joined by Patricia Farrer, who's a Cambridge academic and also president for the British Society of the History of Science. Um, Welcome, Patricia. Thank you. Um, So we're here to talk about your new book, A Lab of One's Own, which looks at the connections between science, suffrage and the First World War and recount some of the remarkable stories of female scientists and doctors who contributed to Britain's war effort. Um, It's published in early 2018. Yes, that's right. So it also marks um, 100 years since women over 30 got the vote in Britain. Absolutely. Women over 30 got the vote for the first time. All men got the vote, uh, but only women over 30, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, if you're a woman, it's a bit annoying. But actually, for women at the time, quite a lot of the suffrage people felt that getting the vote wasn't as important as getting professional equality. So people like scientists and doctors who are incredibly highly trained and educated and all during the war, they'd been doing exactly the same job as men had been doing, but for less pay. Uh, What they really wanted was to get the same salary, the same conditions, the same working opportunities. And in, in terms of their actual daily life, that meant more to them than getting the vote. So can you explain some of the ways, though, that the vote did intersect with science and um, for many women in this period? Well, I think one of the main influences on attitudes towards women at this period was Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. And that reinforced the very long-standing idea that women are intrinsically inferior to men. And what it did was give that idea scientific validity, which meant it was even more strongly incorporated within society. So what Charles Darwin argued, basically, is that over the millennia, men and women have been selected to fit the particular environment that they were in. So over the millennia, all the men have been chosen for their intelligence and their bravery when they're out hunting and their ability to build houses and huts and all that sort of thing. And the women have all been selected to stay at home and look after the children and do all the cooking. And over the millennia, the two 
genders. He would have said sexes because gender didn't exist as a word at that time. So he talked about the two sexes, male and female, had increasingly diverged. But you do mention in the book some ways in which um, science kind of became co-opted by suffragettes because of, of its associations with modernity. Exactly. So, so on the one hand, science was science and physiology was being used to keep women in their place, but women were taking advantage of all the new technological innovations. So one of the most important was the bicycle. And bicycles enabled women to move around freely. It liberated them in the way that they'd never been liberated before. And there was a sort of interactive process that women got on the first bicycles and they soon found it was very, very difficult because they had very, very long flowing skirts. And so the manufacturers started changing their bicycles to make them more suitable for women. They uh, put mud guards on, they put better tyres on, they, they put proper brakes on. And then as women started to use bicycles more and more, they modified their clothing. And so uh, suffrage women or women of an independent frame of mind could be identified by the clothes they wore. Their skirts were a bit shorter, uh, they sometimes wore sort of divided skirts, sort of quasi trousers. And for very conservative establishment women, that was seen as being quite scandalous, that they weren't dressing properly at all. Another technological invention that women took advantage of was the airship, which had only just very recently been invented. And there was a, an Australian actress who went up in an airship and she threw uh, leaflets to vote to for, in favour of suffrage. She distributed them over the countryside. So there, there were ways in that. They also took advantage of film and camera and advertising. They were very savvy women. But what were some of society's main concerns about women getting too involved in science or women taking on scientific jobs? Well, one problem with women taking on scientific jobs was that they were held to be intellectually inferior, so obviously they wouldn't be as good at it, uh, according to their opponents. Another thing was that it would prevent them from having their proper role in society, which was to look after the children and to look after their husband. Uh, that argument rather diminished in force after the end of the war because there were roughly 10 women to every nine men because so many men had died overseas. So there was a surplus of unmarried women. So that argument got less powerful. Um, Another argument was that intellectual work actually was very bad for women. It made them tired. And the new principal of Newnham College at the end of the 19th century, she carried out a survey amongst her students. And she found that actually they got healthier while they were at Cambridge. And I imagine that was probably because they weren't bored, they were getting exercise going to lectures, and they were, um, they were stretching themselves intellectually, which they really enjoyed. What kind of prejudice or uh, discrimination did women encounter in uh, scientific workplaces or in even just trying to get into scientific workplaces? Well, for one thing, it was obviously very few uh, women went to university at all, so that was quite an obstacle. Uh, even when they got to university their, or to medical school, there were some courses that were deemed unsuitable for them. So if you were doing biology, you couldn't really do anything with animals, especially if it involved um, 
anything to do with reproduction. In the medical schools, uh, particularly in London, very few medical schools were open to women. The situation was much better in Scotland. But again, women were excluded from many of the classes. And after, after women had graduated in science, they had to be pretty special to get a job. If they got a job, they would be paid very, very little. Uh, quite often, they were independently wealthy, and so they just did a lot of work without being paid. If you're a woman who had graduated in medicine, then most likely you would be restricted to gynaecology and paediatrics. And what quite a lot of women did who graduated in medicine was to go to somewhere like India, where women had to be, the Indian women had to be treated by female doctors. And so that gave them an opportunity to practice all types of medicine and not just gynaecology. It sounds like you'd have to be pretty strong-willed in order to pursue this. Do we know much about the type of women that went into this? Were they mainly middle class or um, can we identify any characteristics that marked them out? Well, all the women who went into science and medicine had to come from a moderately affluent background. Um, Although some scholarships for schoolgirls were being set up, there weren't very many. I think just as important as being well off was to have a supportive family. So there was one woman, for instance, called Helena Gwynne Vaughan, who, she's she's not exactly my heroine, but she's the person that I empathise with most, and I think she represents a lot of the problems that women did face in science and that they still face now. Because she had several different phases of her career and in every one she was an outsider. So she was born into an incredibly rich and aristocratic family and she got taken on this whirl of debutantes balls and her father was serving overseas. So she lived this very affluent life. But what she really, really wanted to do was go to university. She wanted to ditch all that socialising and study. And she was, 20, she was 21 before she managed to persuade her family to get her to go to university. But then she ran across the problem that she wanted to do zoology, and that was seen as an unsuitable subject for women, so she ended up doing botany. So she was at King's College in London, and she was one of very, very few women who were studying, and there were very few facilities for women. I mean, there are hardly any cloakrooms, there weren't any proper common rooms, it was very, very difficult for her to work. So she was an outsider there. And then she went to Royal Holloway College, which was a women's only college, but she was an outsider there because she dressed incredibly glamorously and she had been brought up to interest men, and she was surrounded by men, to interest men uh, through her looks and her behaviour rather than through her intellect. So the other women resented her. And then during the war, she was asked to head the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps that went to France. And the idea behind that uh, was that there were a lot of men in the army in France who were doing jobs like driving ambulances, cleaning the floors, doing cooking, all jobs that women could do. So the idea was that every woman who joined the Army Corps would release a fit man to be sent to the front. So she was in charge of all these women in France. And she wrote her memoirs about that, and it was quite clear that she faced the most colossal antagonism. The worst aspect was deciding what these women were going to wear. Clothes seemed to be a major, major issue. So they had to have skirts that went down well below their knees, they had to have a special hat, and unlike men's uniforms, they weren't allowed to have breast pockets because that was felt to be 
unsuitable, so therefore they hadn't got any pockets to put anything in. And the, all the men in the army were very sceptical about women's ability and interest in working, and quite often there were a lot of statements that the only reason they wanted to be near the front was so they could be near the men in the camp. So effectively they were being accused of being prostitutes, and that was a, uh, a comment that cropped up a lot. So she was an outsider there, and then she came back and I'm telescoping her career, but for the rest of her life, she spent as a professor of botany at Birkbeck College in London, which was a fantastic position for a woman to have. But again, she was regarded with enormous scepticism. She was one of the very, very few women on the faculty staff. Most of the students were men. Uh, she was a woman of very high standards. She was, had become used to the discipline of the army and it seems to me that she imposed that sort of discipline on the department. I think she was often accused and criticised for being very authoritarian and I think if she'd been a man they would have said she was authoritative. So yet again she, she was an outsider and I, I think she really struggled throughout her whole life. So I think she's a remarkable pioneer and I think like a lot of pioneers she was actually not a very happy woman but she did set enormously important precedents for the female scientists who followed her. And I think um, it's really quite a good case study, her life, that you've just highlighted of quite a lot of the salient points of your book about the things that these women came up against and opportunities presented by war, but then looking back, how much really changed afterwards? Yes, I've tried to choose different women to illustrate different career paths. And of course, one of the difficulties doing a book like this is that there's not much information. And although I, I'm convinced that there were lots and lots of women in these positions, it's difficult to find more than just a snippet about somebody was here and did that. So I've singled out a few women and told longer biographical stories about them, but I've tried to make them different. So for example, another woman who I admire enormously who was called Ray Strait, and she lay right at the centre of the Bloomsbury set and it amazes me that nobody else has really written about it. She went to Cambridge University and she read maths when she was there. She didn't she was very enthusiastic about maths. She didn't get a terribly good degree, and that was because halfway through her time at Cambridge, she became very heavily involved in suffrage activities. And she went on and she did engineering, but then after a few years, and particularly when the war started, she was very, very involved in suffrage activity. And the minute that war was declared, the suffrage societies declared that they were no longer going to campaign for the vote. They were going to dedicate their efforts to the country. And this gained them far more popularity than anything else that they'd done. And Ray Strachey was one of a group of people who set up an employment office for women right in the middle of Victoria. And she spent the whole of the war running committees, finding jobs for these women, running backwards and forwards, talking to cabinet ministers. She, she was constantly, constantly engaged. So although she wasn't actually practising science herself, she enabled a lot of women to do so. And the picture on the front of my book is based on an engraving of a woman welder. And it was Ray Strachey who set up a school for women welders during the war. So they, and they were taught by professional male welders. And it's a very 
uncharacteristic uh, occupation for women at that time. So she was very influential on science, although even though she had a degree in maths, she didn't practice her science, science herself. And I think that's quite related to current debates about the position of women in science, because there's this expression, the leaky pipeline, the idea that roughly uh, 50% of undergraduates reading science are young women. But as you go up the career scale, there are fewer and fewer women, so that by the time you get up to the professorship or the director of a laboratory, the percentage of women is very small. And that phenomenon is often called the leaky pipeline because these women have apparently leaked out. So I could say that I'm an example of the leaky pipeline because I've got a degree in physics from Oxford, but I've never done any physics since I left Oxford. But I rather resent the assumption of that model that you've leaked out of the, of the straight road to the top. There is an intrinsic assumption that if you're not doing science, you're not doing anything useful. And I have done all sorts of other things, in including ending up writing this book. And I like to think that, that the things that I've done are also a valuable contribution to society. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. We often hear about uh, female munition workers and World War One munitionettes, and we hear about Vera Britton and the nurses on the front line. But your book highlights that there were women doing all kinds of different jobs in during the war, both on the front and at home, that we, mm. we don't really hear anything about. Mm. Can you give us some examples of that? Uh, well, there were a lot of women doing other things. Of course, there were far fewer women doing these very high-powered scientific and medical jobs just because very few women had got the training. And I think that's the main reason why we hear less about them than we do about all the thousands and thousands and thousands of munitions workers and ambulance drivers and women repairing engine, uh, engineering equipment, all that sort of thing. And a lot of, thing, a lot of feminist writers have written about those women because they were so important during the war and there's so many of them and I think it's marvellous that these women have been resurrected and I didn't think they did a fantastic job. What I really don't like I think is the is this recreation of cardboard heroines. W women have traditionally been carers and this image of woman as 
women as someone soft and caring, looking after their family, is one that's perpetuated by the images of people like Vera Britton, who volunteered overseas, and she was dressed in a lovely white uniform, so all the pictures can show her and people like Edith Cavell looking like nuns, looking like saints who are innocent, and they're they're reinforcing this image that women are, are carers. And I wanted to convey the impression that they were also well-educated women, like Vera Britton, was very well-educated. There were well-educated women who were undertaking the toughest scientific and medical jobs, ones which are usually associated with men. So almost accidentally, I stumbled across a few women who were scientists and doctors, and as soon as I'd found a couple, I realised they couldn't possibly be alone, and I wanted to find out more about them, and some of their stories are just fantastic. I'll give you two different, very, two very different examples. Uh, one, in, during the war, Imperial College was essentially taken over by the military. And women who worked there, there were already some women who worked there, but all the women, like the men who were left in the universities, dropped their usual, uh, their usual research speciality and they refocused their research to concentrate on the war. And in Imperial College, in the garden, they dug an experimental trench and there was a team of eight women in that trench led by a woman called Martha Whiteley who was a chemist and one of the first women members of Britain's Chemi Royal Chemical Society. She was, she was a great agitator for women's education and she worked in that trench. One of the things she did was develop an explosive, uh, and it was called DW, Dr. Whiteley. And then another thing that she did with her team of women was she investigated the samples of mustard gas that were brought back from Germany. And the way they tested them was by putting them, sort of injecting them underneath their own skin to, on their arms to see what happened. And of course, their arms flared up and they had sort of rashes, burn marks on their skins. So they were doing very military type experiments. So there were women like that. There's another woman who I admire enormously called Isabel Emsley Hutton. Before the war, Isabel Emsley, as she was then known, uh, worked as a children's doctor and she also worked in uh, men the mental health area. So as soon as the war was declared, she decided she wanted to go um, overseas. And she led a group of women to Serbia and Salonika. And there, there was a whole team made up entirely of women. There were surgeons, there were nurses, there were women running the, the radiography machines, there were physicists doing all the electricity. And they set off for Serbia. And she was out there for about five years under the most atrocious conditions. There, one problem was the climate was very difficult because it was either very hot or very cold. And during the summer when it was very hot, there were huge numbers of very virulent diseases, so like malaria and typhoid and typhus, so they had to battle with all of those. Uh, during the winter, there was very, very deep snow. Uh, the equipment was absolutely negligible. They had to build hospitals from scratch. They had to do all the electrical wiring and everything like that themselves. And after the war, she stayed on and she gave medical treatment to a lot of the local people who suffered problems which are now sort of sorted out. Things like club feet and cleft palates, uh, growths that had never been treated, childhood injuries that had never been cared for properly. So she did, She and the women who were with her, the other doctors, did an enormous amount of good. And that's another aspect of it that we never hear about as well.
So they were far from kind of sat um, in laboratories just in the safe zone. They they were really getting down and dirty, you know, hands-on with the dangerous stuff. I think for a lot of these women, it was probably the only time in their whole lives that they enjoyed the freedom to to go out and uh, be as active as men. I was, they had girl guides and boy scouts uh, in England from the turn of the century, but already by, by the time of the war, the, the boys and the girls were doing separate activities and the girls were basically being taught how to bandage up the boys who, when they'd had, had an accident. So for, this, for once, they were completely independent. They could go out there, they could make decisions, they had to fend for themselves, they had to improvise, they had to do electrical repairs. And I, it was very, very exhilarating and exciting. And one of the common themes when you do find comments that they've written is, how am I ever going to cope with being back at home and in a boring job? And I can't possibly go back to the situation I was in before. And I think that's a general feeling that had people had after the war, because there's several different ways of thinking about the war. One is to say, it was fantastic, women were liberated, women over 30 got the vote, life was completely changed after that. The opposite point of view is to say, well, only women over 30 got the vote. Um, Immediately after the war, there was massive unemployment, so all the jobs were given to men, and everything went back to how it had been before. So I think somewhere between those two extreme versions is actually the situation. The war did change a lot, but on the other hand, women had been campaigning for the vote since halfway through the 19th century. This was not a new phenomenon. So the war was a temporary blip that certainly accelerated freedom for women. It didn't cause freedom freedom or liberation for them. And then after the war, even though most women did have to give up the jobs they'd had, Everybody knew, men and women knew, that women were perfectly capable of doing these jobs. So women were in a much stronger position to press for equal pay, equal working conditions, equal uh, employment opportunities. I think um, a part of uh, Isabel Emsley Hutton's story, um, you mentioned her earlier, that she yeah. she set up the hospitals in, um, in Salonika, yeah. um, that I found particularly interesting or moving was illustrates exactly what we were just talking about, that when she'd managed an entire hospital, but when she came back to Britain, things were not the same, were they? Well, when she came back to Britain, she got married. Um, And if you were married at that period, officially, you couldn't have a job in the civil service, you couldn't have a job as a teacher, you couldn't have a job as a doctor. So she got married to an army officer, and so she had to stop working, and she spent a couple of years in some barracks somewhere in the country where he was being trained. And uh, she must have gone completely spare, having come back from Salonika and been used to being in charge. And she eventually managed to find various voluntary positions and her um, her husband earned enough money to support her. But she was very restricted in what she could do and basically she ended up uh, working in children's hospitals and working in mental health. What she really wanted to do was surgery. And by then, I mean, she was an excellent surgeon because she'd had to patch up all these soldiers on the battlefield uh, and then when she stayed afterwards, she was carrying out, out a lot of remedial surgery on the local population. So she was very, very experienced as a surgery, but at that time, surgery above all the other... Uh, medical disciplines, surgery was explicitly a man's career. And I think it's only fairly recently that that's changed. So do you think it's fair to say um, 
that the war, even though it opened up opportunities, they were not lasting. And it took a long time to get back round to the freedoms that women had had in science. Immediately after the war, opportunities for women definitely closed down. Although, of course, um, during the Second World War, there's the same sort of pattern that opportunities opened up again. Between those two periods, uh, there was also a change in the position of science in this country. And scientific uh, change had already been being introduced and the government, even before the war, had been investing in things like developing aeroplanes. But it was so obvious that that science had had a very huge impact on the way the, the war was conducted that after the war, the government began investing far more money in science, uh, industrial development uh, was also happening and so there were far more jobs available than there had been in in the past. There was also more interest in women's education so more grants were being made available, there were more places in the universities so several things were changing at the same time so opportunities were better between the war Uh, the two wars than they had been before the First World War. But there was still that enormous pay differential. And there was also a thing that people did. They would advertise routine jobs at low pay. And women were so desperate for jobs that they would take the job at low pay. And that reinforced the idea that the men got the exciting research positions and the women, all all the women could do was those sort of routine, boring jobs. And that was because of the pay differential. So even 100 years on, there's still a gender disparity in STEM subjects. Mm. Um, at the end of the book, you, you reflect on this fact. Um, mm. Do you think it's viable to try and take any lessons from the past or this period of history? And if so, what might they be? I certainly think it's valuable to take lessons from the past. One of my basic aims as a historian is to look at the past and so try to understand how it is that we've reached the present. And then from that, try to improve the future. So I personally feel that I've got a social responsibility to use my history to do that. So one message that I would give to young women at the beginning of their careers is that they should not lose hope. A lot of students come to me in their complete despair and they say there's so much disparity uh, between between the genders and it's never ever going to be perfect. That is not true. There, it, there, the situation is vastly, vastly better than when I was at university and greatly improved since the First World War. So during the course of the 20th century, the situation for women improved enormously and this seems absolutely every reason to me to think that it will go on improving in the future. That was Patricia Farrer. A Lab of One's Own, Science and Suffrage in the First World War, is out now in the UK, published by OUP. And in the US, it will be released in a few days' time from the same publisher. And that is about it for today, but please do listen in again on Thursday when we'll be discussing the BBC's new Civilization series with one of its presenters, Simon Sharma. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. 
Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 